It's good to see uh, everyone here today. We also have a very uh, welcomed individual coming back into the fold. My father-in-law, Bob West, is here from gallbladder surgery. He, uh, he's got quite a story to tell, but I'm going to make him wait because I want him to tell it on Easter Sunday. So on Easter Sunday, uh, you're going to hear from Bob about um, his two weeks in the hospital and the, the long ordeal that both he and Cheryl have been through in our family. But it's a good story, but you're going to have to wait for it. I'm sorry. So you can't ask him ahead of time. You've got to wait all the way to the end of the month. No, I'm just kidding. Good to see you, Bob. If you have a Bible, open up to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Colossians, chapter 3. And as you're turning there, uh, the, uh, my house, I don't know about your house, but my house, as the years have gone by, is progressively getting louder. Um, there are more people in my house. We call them children. Uh... The kids are starting to get louder, uh, presumably to because, you know, there's more of them, and so it's harder to get mom and dad's attention. Uh, I understand that the decibel level of a jet propulsion engine is somewhere around 150 decibels, and I am convinced that my daughter Mallory's regular speaking voice is at least 10 decibels higher than that. Because when she talks to me, it's almost as if my daughter is yelling. She's like, Daddy! 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 I'm like, Mallory, calm down. Calm down. It's getting louder in the Anderson household. Well, Amelia, our, our nine, ten-month-old now is watching this. And she's watching Bennett and Mallory, you know, and the decibels are flying all, bouncing around the house. And Amelia is starting to catch on. And so she is also starting to just yell randomly. Uh, particularly before feeding time. She'll be sitting in the high chair, and she'll look out at us and just go, ah, ah, ah. And we'll look at her and be like, hold on, hold on. She'll be like, ah, ah, ah. And she'll just yell and scream. And we're just trying to shove food in her as fast as we can so that she'll stop screaming. Needless to say, we, we don't like the loudness. I'm sure you can relate. And so we've, we've done some things in our parenting that has helped to alleviate the noise. We did it with Bennett, we did it with Mallory, and now we're doing it with Amelia, and apparently it's been very effective. Um, but we, we've been teaching them sign language as a baby. And so we'll teach Amelia, we'll say, uh, we'll, we'll take her hand and we'll say, please, please, or we'll say more, more. Because we know that even though she can't talk, we know that a baby can learn sign language. And it's one way in which a baby can communicate. And Bennett and Mallory both learned it in their early age. And just recently, Amelia started to say, please. One word commands. They're easy to learn. They're easy to remember. They're easy to follow. And they bring an easing and a sense of peace to our life. When it's short, when it's sweet, when it's to the point. One word. In the next section of Colossians, 
chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. Actually, all the way to chapter 4, verse 6. In this whole next section of Colossians, Paul is going to be giving you and I some one-word commands. He's going to take the theology that he's written about in chapters 1 and 2, and he's going to put it into practical form in chapters 3 and 4. He's going to take the theology of the earlier chapters, and he's going to use it in answering the question, how should we live? And he's going to answer that question with short and sweet one-word answers. Words like off, on, under, and up. If you have an outline there, you'll see uh, the upcoming studies in Colossians. We're at part one today. Put off the old man. And the upcoming series is put on the new man. Come under proper authority. Wise up and lift up prayers. Paul is going to be using these short, pithy commands, as it were, to remind us how to live. To paraphrase A.T. Lincoln, this entire section of Colossians, from Colossians 3, 5, all the way to 4, 6, shows us how to live a heavenly-minded, earthly life. How to live a heavenly-minded, earthly life. Would you please stand with me as we read from Colossians chapter 3? And I actually want to start in verse 1 just to give it some context. We'll go to verse 11. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, all the way to 11. Paul, in writing this letter to the Colossian Christians, says this. He says, if then, or since then, you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked, when you lived in them. But now, you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you've put off the old man with his deeds, and you've put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Heavenly Father, would you show us by your Spirit, in your word, how you want us to live. May we see clearly these short, pithy commands for how to live. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Those of you who missed last week, maybe you were out on the re retreat, ladies, we learned that Paul has made quite a declaration about those who have trusted Jesus as their Savior. 
Back in chapter 3, verse 1, and then also earlier in chapter 2, Paul said that if you're a Christian, you've already been raised. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you've already been raised. Not physical resurrection, mind you. That's still to come. But in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes, If then you were raised with Christ... We could substitute the word since then. That's the impression that Paul's leaving with them. Our soul, by faith in Jesus, has been raised. It was dead and dying, and now it's alive again. We become a new person. We've been raised up. And as we've been raised up, now Paul says, keep going up. Keep looking up. Think, speak, and act in a manner that befits your new nature. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. And we say, well, Paul, that sounds like a good idea. But how do I do that in practice? That's where we come to Colossians 3.5. This is where Paul begins to answer the question, how should I now live? And he answers it with four words, off, on, under, up. Today we look at off. Paul says, first and foremost, put off or put to death the old man. Look again at verses 5 to 7. Paul writes, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Put to death. Sounds pretty lighthearted, right? No. Put to death your members. What members? The elements or aspects of your former life of sin. The sin that so easily entangles you, that has entangled you, that is entangling you now. Paul says, put it to death. Kill it. Destroy it. Go to extreme measures to cut it out, to rid yourself of it, of fornication, of uncleanness, of passion of evil desire, of covetousness, which is idolatry. To put sin to death in this way is often quite a sacrifice, actually. It means leaving behind something that we often like, something that we might even enjoy. In Genesis chapter 39, there's the story of of Joseph, and he uh, becomes... Uh, a woman by uh, Potiphar's wife, his his master's wife, becomes enraptured with Joseph, and she she wants Joseph. She wants to um, have an affair with him. And Joseph, at the time, if you were to read the story in Genesis thirty nine, Joseph is wearing a a valuable garment, a cloak that is very much perhaps the the very garment that was given to him by his father. And when Potiphar's wife sought to grab hold of Joseph and say, I I want to have an affair with you, is what she was essentially saying to him, he left that coat, 
he left that garment in her hands and stormed out. He saw temptation. He saw sin right before his very eyes. And he left something valuable behind to get away from it. We too need to be prepared to take personal loss for sin that can so easily entangle us. The person who's addicted to pornography on their phone, on their computer, such a person needs to get rid of their phone. Such a person needs to get rid of their private computer access. They should set up rules as to when they can go online or perhaps ask a friend to hold them accountable to the websites that they visit. It's a sacrifice, but it may be the only way to put sin to death. I remember having a conversation with... uh, Actually, I've had this conversation three or four times with individuals. And they say, you mean... What do you mean put my phone away? What do you mean get rid of my phone? Get rid of your phone. Get rid of your phone. If your phone is causing you to sin, get rid of it. You'd be surprised how little you might need it. Go back to the old landline, right? The person who's addicted to materialism, they may need to cut up their credit cards... They may need to ask their spouse to put them on a strict cash-only budget so as to avoid frivolous spending on the things they don't need. It's a sacrifice, but it may be the only way to put the sin of spending to death. Shall we change microphones? I'm going to just pause right there. Want me to go back here, Josh? Okay. Yeah, that's fine. Thought we were having a little trouble there. Testing. All right. The person who... Excuse me. It's not just limited to these sins. Paul opens it up to a wide gamut of sins. Look at the sins he opens it up to. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire. And the list goes on. Fornication. What's, what's uh, fornication? The Greek word porneia, where we get the English word pornography. It has to do with illicit sexual activity and relations. It is noteworthy that this sin, porneia, is often listed first among the vice lists in Paul. Paul has a number of instances in the New Testament. You go through his letters. He has a number of moments where he lists a whole bunch of sins. Porneia is often at the front for good reason. Illicit sexual activity or relations. Paul puts it at the front. He says this is a big one. Uncleanness, meaning all kinds of moral evils. It can include physical evils, emotional evils, manipulation and deceit. Passion, meaning dishonorable passion. Lusting after something, someone. Evil desire or evil thoughts. And Paul lists covetousness last. And it's the only vice that comes with an explanation. He says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He defines covetousness as idolatry. Fewer sins to a first century Christian was more egregious than idolatry. The prohibition against idolatry went all the way back to the times of the Ten Commandments when God told Moses, you shall not create a carved image for yourself. So when Paul mentions covetousness 
and then likens it to idolatry, it would have especially caught the attention of the hearers of his letter. When we covet something, when we covet someone, when we desire something more than, when we desire to have something more than what we presently possess, when we want and yearn for someone or something that we ought not have, then that thing becomes our idol. We in the West, we don't, we don't have a problem with picking up a, 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 a piece of bark and carving an idol. That's not what we do. That's maybe what generations past did. Maybe there are still uh, yet some generations and tribes uh, in different parts of the world that, that actually carve idols. But Paul would have us recognize that we still are an idolatrous people, even though we don't physically carve out an idol. He says, you do pine over things. You pine over things to buy. You pine over a status to achieve, a, a, a spot in the corporate ladder to achieve. You pine over a possession of another, be that a house, a car, even another man or woman spouse. Paul would say such mentality is idolatry. We need to confess it. We need to repent of it. All these sins, Paul writes in verse 6, all of these sins, verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Wrath of God. Let's stop right there. Because of these sins, Paul says, the wrath of God is coming. Well, that's quite simply, just as we read it, God's wrath comes because man is sinful. God executes judgment upon the earth, upon mankind, because man is sinful. And Paul is simply bringing out the point that what we read in Revelation 5 to 19, what we read in Romans 1 when it speaks of the wrath of God, that is all God's reaction, natural reaction as a holy God to sin that is around him. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Who is it coming to? It's coming upon the sons of disobedience. This is a phrase that's used a couple times in Paul, earlier in Ephesians. There's some remarkable similarity we'll get to in just a minute. Essentially, the sons of disobedience is, is a generic way of saying anyone who disobeys God. Anyone who, di who transgresses and disobeys God, the wrath of God is coming upon those who disobey Him. And I want to turn briefly to Ephesians. It's in your outline. If you'd like to go in your Bibles, turn to Ephesians. Just a few books, a few letters earlier, I should say. Ephesians chapter 5. And you're going to see with remarkable, uh, remarkable similarity uh, what Paul has to say in Ephesians with what he also told the Colossians. It's noteworthy that in Ephesians, Paul is also in the same exact setting. He's under house arrest in, in Rome. He's writing a letter to the church in Ephesus. And simultaneously during that time, he wrote a letter to Colossians. And so when you read Ephesians, um, and, you, and, when you, and when you read Colossians, you're going to notice a lot of similarities between the two. Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 3 to 6. Paul writes, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know, that no 
fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Almost word for word there with Colossians. Lots of similarities in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. The list of sins, very similar, verses 3 to 5 in Ephesians. The wrath of God, verse 6, very similar. The sons of disobedience reference in verse 6, very similar. But the reason I bring out this Ephesians passage is because Paul comes on even stronger in the Ephesians text. He comes on even stronger in verse 5 when he says, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. It is here in verse 5 that many Christians shudder, as well they should. Does that mean that if I do these things that I'll lose my salvation? Does it mean that perhaps if I, if I do these things, it'll prove I was never a Christian to begin with? What does it mean on your outline there on the back side? What does Ephesians 5.5 5 mean? What inheritance can I lose? The Greek word for inheritance there is kleronomia. It, uh, it carries, in its use in the New Testament and the Septuagint, the Greek uh, translation of the Old, it carries with it a variety of meanings, and I want to give you three meanings that you can write down. I've put the first letter on each one there. So number one, the first meaning that, it, that, that kleronomia can mean, land. In the Old and New Testament, so often when the word inheritance was used, it literally meant the land of Israel, the land of promise, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It can mean the land, the physical blessing, so to speak. Secondly, it can also mean, and this is somewhat doubtful, but I think it's there in Acts 20. It can mean spiritual maturity. It can mean spiritual maturity. Paul in Acts 20 was talking to the Ephesian elders, and he was saying that, that they would gain an inheritance as they carried out their duties, that they would gain a measure of spiritual maturity. Most prominently, it definitely does mean, number three, eternal salvation slash rewards slash blessings. And I put the, the slashes there for good reason because it's very fluid how the term inheritance is used. It can mean eternal salvation. Sometimes it means that. It, it can also mean eternal rewards. It can also mean eternal blessings or, you know, it's very similar to rewards. It may include eternal salvation, but it's certainly not limited to it. You don't find one instance of kleronomia where you can point to and say that's definitively and only eternal salvation apart from all of these other things. It's very hard to do in the New Testament. I want to say this though. We should never diminish the magnitude of the warning that we're reading. Paul would not use such strong language in Ephesians 5, 5 if he did not want to get your, your and my attention. There is something to be lost if we resort back to a life of sin. But is it our entrance ticket to heaven? I would say no. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. Jesus says in the Gospel of John that the man who is believed on him shall not 
has passed from death to life and shall not come into judgment again. There are so many instances in the Gospels and in the letters of Paul that say once you've trusted Christ, it's a done deal. You can take it to the bank. You are justified. You've passed from death to life. You've gone from hell to heaven when you believe in Jesus as your Savior. Amen? But you can lose something. If you resort back to a life of sin, you can lose a lot of your kleronomia, your inheritance. That is to say, your land, your physical blessings in this life. You'll reap what you sow in this life. I can guarantee you that. You can also lose a measure of spiritual maturity. We talked a lot about that in Colossians 2. How on and on and on Paul would say, don't get cheated. Don't get plundered. Don't get pillaged in your mind, in your soul, by resorting back to these old ways of sin. And you can certainly lose a measure of eternal reward and blessing. Can you lose your salvation? Never. Once you've trusted Christ, you cannot lose it. You say, well, Neil, are you sure that, that Paul's not talking about salvation here? Are you sure he's not talking about the, the fact that I, I might be able to lose my entrance into heaven? Well, there's one more piece of evidence I'd like to show you if you're still unconvinced. Look at the context of Ephesians chapter 5. Read carefully the context. Look again at verse 3. I'll highlight it for you. He says in Ephesians 5, 3 and 4, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. And then he goes on to give his ominous warning that if you do these things, you won't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. But the key words there in verses 3 and 4 that indicate to us that this is not about heaven and hell is the Greek words used for fitting. It's not fitting. It's not fitting. Paul uses two different words as a matter of fact. In verse 3, he uses prepo. In verse 4, he uses aneko. Both words are synonyms. They mean suitable. They mean proper. They mean doing one's duty. Doing what's right. Doing what you're supposed to do. Had Paul wanted to tell us that we were in danger of hellfire, he wouldn't have used words like fitting or proper. It wouldn't make sense for Paul to say something like, you know, it's not proper for you to fornicate and covet. In fact, it's so improper that you'll go to hell for it. That doesn't make sense. That's the wrong language to use if talking about the dangers of hellfire. This warning isn't about hell. It's about a loss of eternal reward, a loss of inheritance in heaven, not of heaven. Paul is saying, avoid these sins. They're not right. They're not proper. They're not becoming of a son or daughter of Jesus. And if you continue in these sins, you will suffer great loss. Your heavenly reward will be forfeited. You will enter the kingdom, but you will not inherit the kingdom. And there is a difference. Paul knew the propensity that we all have to sin. He knew that even believers could fall. Even believers could fail. After all, he says in verse 7, notice what he says. 
that we once walked according to these patterns of sin. Chapter 3, verse 7. He says, of, uh, I'm in Ephesians here. Well, let's, go, let's go back to Colossians. Chapter 3, verse 7. In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. He says, you were once doing these things. And Paul knows that it's so easy to slip back into it. Just read uh, Romans 7, how quickly Paul himself would slip back into sin. We once walked in this manner, Paul said. We once conducted ourselves in this manner. And that brings me to a, a kind of a little rabbit trail that, uh, that kind of caught my attention this week that I wanted to bring out. Um, I wanted to read from a selection from F.F. F. Bruce in his commentary on uh, Colossians. It's a little bit lengthy, but, uh, but bear with it. It's, I think it's an important lesson for us here today. little rabbit trail. Bruce writes this, and, he, and he, to, 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 to set up the context, Bruce is looking at that list of sins, and then he's recognizing that Paul is telling his audience, you, you, you all, all of you and me, all of us, Paul says, all of us were entangled in these sins. Some of us still are to some measure. But all of us at one point have been entangled in these sins. And Bruce writes this in response to that, that identification that we've all fallen prey to these sins. This is what he writes. He says, quote, This is not the only place in the New Testament where a catalog of pagan vices is immediately followed by a reminder to the readers that not so long ago their own lives were marked by these things. It was largely for this reason that Paul's critics thought him so foolishly impractical in stressing gospel liberty, which his critics thought might be all very well and good for Jews and God-fearers who had already learned to acknowledge the law of God in their lives, but for people so lately weaned from pagan immorality, they ought to be subjected first to a period of probation, so Paul's critics thought. But Paul's policy was different. These former pagans, former pagans in Colossae, in the church, had now received a new nature. They were in Christ, and Christ lived in them. And if they looked on themselves as dead to their former desires and alive to God in Christ, then the Christ life now coming to maturity within them would manifest itself in a new pattern of behavior. For Paul, transformation, changing one's life. You, you, read, you read all sorts of books about how to change your life, how to make your life better. The latest guru has a book on the shelf somewhere about how to change your life. For Paul, transformation, real life change. For Paul, it starts in the mind. It begins with a renewed mind. It matters not if you're a brand new Christian. It matters not if you've known Christ for decades. It matters not if you've known Him your whole life. If you want to change your life, it starts with a renewed mind. And when a Christian, be they brand new or one who's known Jesus for years, when a Christian reckons in their mind that they're a new creature, 
when they reckon in their mind that they're washed by Jesus' blood, when they finally regard themselves and look at themselves and see them as God sees them, their present sins and transgressions, the battles that they face on a day-to-day basis with the enemy and his minions, that battle will be won. That battle you will find a measure of victory in it. When you can reckon in your mind and look upon yourself and think of yourself as God thinks of you through Christ, you will begin to win that battle. I can preach, uh, and I have, to Christians who have been afflicted with alcoholism, with drug addiction. I can preach to them until I'm blue in the face. I can tell them over and over again, don't do drugs, don't drink, don't do drugs, don't drink. But until they believe that God has unconditionally forgiven them, that God unconditionally loves them, and that God unconditionally maintains the highest hopes for them, very little will change. Very little will change until their mind is changed about how they understand God looks at them. I can counsel a couple who are struggling daily in their marriage over and over again. Husband fighting with wife. Wife bickering with husband. And we can counsel until I'm blue in the face. But until they recognize the enormous sacrifice that Jesus made for them, until they look at the cross and realize the weight and the magnitude of all that their Savior did for them, it will be years before they even have a glimmer of hope in their marriage to show sacrificial love, to show honor to one another. Because it starts in the mind. We must resolve to the daily renewing of our mind. F.F. Bruce says that the critics would have you say, you know, you're you're a brand new Christian or you're a baby Christian, you need to go off into a period of probation for a while. You, you need to really, you know, prove yourself. Follow the rules. Follow the regulations. You know, earn your dues. Earn your keep. Let's see how you do over the years. But Paul's policy was different. He says, no, I, all I want you to do is just change your thinking. You can do it as a brand new Christian. You can do it as a mature Christian. And anywhere in between, even if you're not a Christian... As you're seeking, as you're looking, as you're listening and learning truth, and you're trying to understand, do I believe this or not? Paul says it starts up here with recognizing how God looks at you. And when you finally come to grips with how God sees you because of Jesus, read that last line, then the Christ life now coming to maturity within you will manifest itself in a new pattern of behavior. You'll be changed. You'll be changed. Putting to death our sin then starts in the mind. It's not just leaving the cloak behind. It's not just getting rid of our smartphone. It's not just cutting up the credit cards. Those things are well and good and those things ought to be followed. But until we change things here, it's not going to matter what we do in the physical realm. It starts in the mind to the daily renewing of my mind. 
And that is why church is so important. That is why Bible studies are so important. That is why being under consistent, regular teaching of God's Word is so indispensable. Our culture treats Sunday like it's optional. Our culture treats church like it's an extracurricular activity. That it's not required. That it's a nice add-on, but if it cramps our schedule, well, it, it can go. Other people complain, you know, I've learned all I need to know in church. I'm not learning as much as I used to. I don't even remember what the pastor preached on last week. So what good is it? You know, I have a really bad memory. I have a really bad memory. I can't remember uh, a, a good chunk of my life, as a matter of fact. Sometimes I look back and I'm like, I, what? Casey will tell me things and I'll be like, what? We, we went there? So... When I start to lose it, you guys are going to know, okay? Trust me. You're gonna, hopefully, you know, or you won't know. Exactly. Uh, I have a bad memory, but it, 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 the thing is, when I look at the past week, I can't remember what I ate. If I were to look back at the whole month of February and you were to ask me, Neil, can you tell me one meal that you had? Can you describe to me the elements of one dinner that you had? I couldn't do it. I could not tell you what I had for one dinner in February. But I know this. If I hadn't eaten in February, I wouldn't be here right now. I'm not going to retain everything that happens in my life. I'm not going to remember every meal. You're certainly not going to remember every sermon or Bible study. It won't always be as interesting and it won't always be as thought-provoking. And you might think from time to time, boy, is this even worth it? But you know what? You're getting fed. You're getting fed. And you need spiritual food. Go one week without studying the Bible, you'll feel it. Go one month without opening up God's Word, you'll feel it. Go one year or years, decades of not opening up this book. Show me how well that person's doing. You see, it doesn't matter whether you think you're retaining or whether you think that you, I've already heard this or whether you think that there's nothing uh, new that you can learn. The point is you need food you need spiritual food. You need it daily. You need it weekly. That you might grow. You won't retain all of it. And it won't always be equally thought-provoking. Sometimes you'll walk away going, wow, that was kind of dull. But you know what? So is macaroni and cheese. At least for me. Okay, amen. Can I get an amen? Macaroni and cheese is dull. But you know what? Sometimes I eat it. Because it's the only thing left in the pantry. And some of you, you know what? You, you just need to keep eating the mac and cheese sometimes. And every once in a while, that juicy ribeye will come. But in the meantime, don't complain about the mac and cheese because it's feeding you. Keep coming to church. Keep finding Bible studies to become a part of. Keep reading the Bible on your own. It does more good than you would ever imagine. 
Verse 8, we gotta, we got to hustle. Verse 8, Paul says, But now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Don't lie to one another. You've put off the old man with his deeds. There's more to put off. There's more to put to death. Anger, wrath, malice, which is to say wishing or doing harm upon another, physical, emotional, or otherwise. Blasphemy, filthy language, using your tongue to curse God or your fellow man. Speaking profanely of others or lying to them. Verse 9. Paul says you're better than that. Jesus made you new. He's removed the old man of sin in you. You've already been raised in your spirit. Now put that old man to death and be who you really are. Who am I? Verse 10. This is who you are. You've put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of Christ who created you where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. I, by faith in Christ, am a new person. The most powerful and wise Spirit of God lives in me. I am renewed in knowledge according to the image of Jesus who created me. It doesn't matter if I'm young or old, black or white, Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Christ is all in all. That class warfare and racial tension that we have today, so it was in first century Colossae, so it'll be throughout all of the ages. But Jesus is no respecter of persons. He doesn't care what color you are. He doesn't care what stage you're at in your spiritual walk. He loves you just the same. And He has the highest hopes for you. We need not worry about our past, our background, where we've come from, but only about our present possession that we have in Christ and about the prospect of great heavenly inheritance that lies ahead. In closing, uh, Bennett, uh, when, he, when he comes home from school, uh, he's a peculiar boy, I'll tell you. He comes home from school, and the first thing he wants to do is just take off all his clothes. He likes being in his underwear. He's going to love this sermon one day. He, he does. He, just, he likes to take off all his clothes, and he just runs around in his underwear. He's just one of those you know, free boys out there, you know what I mean? And uh, it, it's funny because... We, we're like Bennett, you know, first of all, we say, keep your clothes on, please. But secondly, it's really funny to watch when he has layers on. Because when he's got a coat on, or when he's got his little, you know, school sweater on, and he's trying to take it off, and he's wiggling out of it, and he can't quite do it, and he's trying to pull it off, but he can't get the clothes off, right? It is hilarious to watch when he has layers that he's trying to rip off. It's hard. It's difficult for him to take off those layers. Well, you know what? Our old sin, our old sins are like those layers of clothes. The more we leave it on, the more we pile it up, the more layers you put on, guess what? The harder it's going to be to take it off. The harder it's going to be to take it off. How should we live? Paul says, you must put off the old man. You must put those sins to death. You must take off the sin that so easily entangles you and start now 
Because if it starts to pile up, it will be difficult to take off. But as you day by day see sin in your life and confess it right then and there, you're going to be better served. As you see sin that entangles your life and, and, and wraps you up, and as you confess it and repent of it right away, finding accountability right away, making a change right away, putting it to death right away, you're going to see a change. How should we live? Put off the old man. And next week, we'll speak about what we will put on in our next study in Colossians. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to study your word, to see how we should live. We know what to put off. We know what to put to death. You've called us to take our sins, to take that old flesh, that old man, and put it to death. That is, just take extreme measures to make sure that we're not resorting back to it. But God, it starts with the mind. And we're asking God by your spirit and through your word to renew our mind. Remind us of how important it is to hear your word, to study it. To be in multiple places throughout our week where we're considering it, meditating upon it. Because as it comes into our mind, it helps us, God, live and think and act and speak in the way that you've called us to. Lord, we want to put off the old man because that old man is not us. That is our old flesh. That is our old way. But we've been raised with you, Jesus. And so we want to be who we are. Help us now, God, to live in such a way that we would be whom you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.